0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community, people just like you who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Kent Dobson as he wraps up our series, The Great Patterns. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. All right, let's start with a quotation from Carl Jung. He says, life, life is a luminous pause. Life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries. Life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries, birth and death, which are yet one. Life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries which are are yet one. That's what I wanna talk about today. I want to try to bring some language and words and images to the luminous pause between two great mysteries, between birth and death. I want to talk about the life, death, life cycle. I want to talk about death and resurrection. I want to talk about um, death and rebirth. Not only because it's Easter, obviously. Happy Easter. But because um, it's also just the way things are. What is really true? What is ultimately true about life and about nature and about who we are And what does it look like to turn our attention to what's ultimately the case? By the way, this this, this is just an aside. I used to kind of like the phrase, um, I'm spiritual but not religious. But I've changed my mind. (laughs) I've changed my mind. I'm religious but not very spiritual. Because what I mean by religious is orienting my life toward the great conversation, to the great patterns, to the way things are? What if I ordered my life around what's sacred and holy? Um, not that that's easy, and not that that's easy to define exactly what any of those things mean, but I'm talking about an orientation. And that's what I'm asking. How do we orient ourselves to meaning? How do we orient ourselves to the mystery of birth and death and, and the precious mystery that is, that is existence. How do, how do I align myself um, like that? That's what I mean by religious. So um, we're in the middle of a series here at East Lake, which I've called The Great Patterns. And let me, let me just make a couple of um, introductory comments in case you missed the opening talk. And first of all, a statement. And here's the statement. We don't make meaning up. We discover where it already exists. I don't think we really make meaning up, although in a postmodern world, we kind of are under the illusion that we can do that. Um, But we actually discover where it already exists. Like we bump into what's really true, in other words. And that's always been part of the burden and beauty of human consciousness. Part of the wrestling match of human consciousness. How do we relate to what's ultimately true? And um, and one of the things that has always helped human cultures, cultures wildly um, separated from one another, are what I what I'm calling the great patterns, the big symbols, or archetypes. Archetype just means old pattern. It's not really. It sounds fancier than it is. It's just an old pattern. And there, there have been human, uh, there have been patterns that human beings have tried to name in symbol, in art, in architecture, in literature, in myth and in poetry that have helped order our world and bring meaning to it, or help us relate to meaning. And the, the four that I wanted to look at over the last four weeks were the uh, cosmic tree, the great mother, the sacred center, and today the life-death-life cycle, or death and resurrection, you could say. Um, And these patterns are true. And and to align ourselves with the truth, sort of hidden in these ancient images, brings our life meaning. And man, we need meaning today. Uh, we, we, it's an age of a glut of information, as, as I've said before. I like um, David White's poem, This is not the age of information. This is the time for loaves and fishes. <laughs> this is not the age of information. We think it is, but we we need something more substantial. Substance, substance that's um, richer and deeper and more and more filling than the news ticker at the bottom of the screen. It's it's an age of loaves and fishes. That's the the image David White uses, where one good word is bread for a thousand. We're hungry for that one good word. And and what I'd like to say is that the patterns help align us to that that one good, good word. And we need reminders of what's ultimately the case in the world. So that's what we've kind of been exploring. And it's hard to talk about the great patterns because they're very rich and they cross cultures and stories and myths and poems and legends. And, and um, so all we can do is say on a day like today, we're just gonna explore a little of the terrain. And today I wanna talk about the life, death, life cycle. That, that's, a, that's a phrase I got from Thomas Berry who, who inspired this, this teaching. Who argues that we need these great patterns and he was a a cosmologist an ecologist a monk um, right on the edge of of Christianity really pushing and he's saying we have to come in back into contact uh, with these great patterns so I want to talk about the life-death life cycle and I think we can add to it now already at the beginning what else do I mean death and resurrection I mean Um, descent and return I mean uh, burial and new life the cycle of things as life turns so that's the terrain I just want to try to explore that terrain today Um, what what can we stand to learn and how can we align ourselves with the pattern let me give you one other image which I think is helpful So imagine you have human consciousness, or even the ego, who I think I am, my thoughts and ideas and language and worldview, and I'm over here. And the great other, mystery, the abyss, (laughs) um, the unknown, God, stands somewhere um, beyond. So I have my experience, and I have the great other. Well, how... As human beings and our limited consciousness, how do we relate to mystery? Because the Bible says something interesting. It's like it gives warnings. Even Moses. Moses says, I just want to see the face of God. And basically, God is like, no, you'll be destroyed. You can't look directly at mystery. It's too much. It's overwhelming. You're just a human being. You just have a little piddly brain and, um, and a heart that only lasts so long. So no one can peer directly into the abyss or directly into the mystery or directly into the face of God. But something like a stained glass window is created between the two, between the human world and the world of mystery. And the stained glass is are like the symbols, the patterns. So in the glass, it's like something of the mystery passes through and, and illuminates the um, a sense of meaning and purpose and shape. And we just get a hint and we get a clue. It's like, oh my God, I'm not alone. And there is mystery and it's being refracted. I guess that's the right word. Refracted through the light of the glass. It allows us to gaze at the mystery. And you could even say maybe the other way around. I don't know. I'm not God. God might say, well, I need the symbols too. How else? Um, I might need the stained glass as well. How else might I... Communicate just how wildly uh, um, holistic and unitive and one is the entire universe that I'm enveloping everything in. I might need some symbols, <laughs> so that's the image here. And so today I want to look at the at death and resurrection as a symbol. Ref- refracting in the light of the great mysteries, allowing us to, to gaze upon um, what is ultimately unknown or, uh, or known in part, we could say. So that's where I'm going. That's the terrain I, I wanna uh, try to wander around in today. And um, maybe I wanna start by making a few observations about the rituals that have come down to us over time. If you think about when you think about your own life, the some of the most important and meaningful and sometimes um, sad moments in life are around the birth of something and around death. Around um, when a baby comes into the world and when someone goes into the tomb. And human cultures have always created ceremonies that honor that, that market, that It's a way of of separating out from the ordinary. Okay, I know this is an ordinary and completely natural thing that's happening. A baby comes into the world and we bury mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, son or daughter um, in the tomb. I know it's the way things are because I can look around and see everything is is impermanent. Everything is passing away. Everything is being born and and dying and being born and, and dying. But... Um, It somehow feels different than, you know, cleaning up the dishes after breakfast, though that's important. So we mark them. We say, this is sacred. This is holy. Um, When someone tells you that they're about to have a baby, you don't say, ah, well, um, I saw this really cool meme on the internet yesterday. You know, check it out. You know, it's like, no, I mean, you're supposed to say, congratulations, amazing. Um, you know, how are you feeling? Are you scared? You know, this kind of thing. So we, anyway, we create rituals around around birth and death, with this, which tells you something. It's part of the stained glass. It's part of the symbol of the birth-death cycle. and And ceremonies and rituals matter, especially when you're going through it. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at um, at a a retreat, and um, and one of the people who helped set up the retreat had just had a baby, and um, she came one day and said, you know, wanted everyone to meet the baby, and it kind of happened a little bit spontaneously, although there was a little forethought with it because we knew that she was coming. She, uh, we were all in contact with her for setting this retreat up, um, though she wasn't able to attend. And so we just decided like, let's do a ceremony and welcome this new child into the world and say blessings and, and hopes and aspirations and speak our dreams and ask for help and, and in a way offer this child up to the world. Um, and it was a powerful, rich, deep ceremony. Tears were shed. It was beautiful and it was kind of tragic and beautiful at the same time. Maybe you maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe you experienced something like that around the birth of your own child or your grandchild or um, or a friend or or, um, the sense that the holy and the sacred has entered the ordinary space here and you know this is meaningful. I don't, I I would never touch the bottoms, the bottom of of just how meaningful it is for this new life to be in the world. And and death is like that. When we hear that someone close to us dies or um, we hear that a friend has lost a loved one recently, I mean, not only do we do we share in in a sense of um, of grief or sadness, but there's an overwhelming sense that this needs to be marked. This this is a this time period is sacred. It's holy, and it needs our attention and consciousness. And it needs beauty, and it needs ritual. I remember when my own dad died, I. If if you've ever been to, I mean, people are buried in different ways and if they're even buried these days. Um, But there's a sense that uh, I had this sense that although technically the the coffin goes into um, like a vault, like a concrete vault, which is very unnatural (laughs) in many respects, I still had this feeling like, I want to throw dirt on the coffin. From dust you came to dust you shall return. And, and so, I mean, we asked the, the, um, the funeral people, whatever they're called, undertakers, to provide this, is said, no problem. So they, they brought a little bucket of dirt and uh, we went through a very short ceremony and it was cold, it was the winter. And we each took turns throwing the, the dirt on the, on the coffin and it felt tragic and right at the same time. And, and my little nephew, who was very young at the time, um, took such great delight in it, you know, picked up a, a clump of dirt and just whipped it in there, chucked it in there and grabbed another one and chucked it in there. And, and it brought the right kind of humor to, to the solemnness and the sacredness of the ceremony. And my dad would have loved this. He would have laughed out loud and hard. Just the, the sheer delight in chucking dirt on a coffin and and right there it was like birth death, birth death it was like new life and possibility and meaning and and potential awaiting the world and the ending of a life having lived one's potential and done what one can do in the world for better and for better or worse and and regrets and all there it is. Um, and that's to bring sacred, something sacred and, and beautiful, um, yeah. We can't help it. And and even if we, even in a in a in a in a world that I guess is growing increasingly less religious in the traditional sense, I just saw the Big Lebowski where, um, Do, uh, is it Donnie? Donnie dies? Yeah, and um, and they don't and the dude. And the John Goodman character don't really have enough money for uh, a nice funeral, or and they're not sure what to do with the ashes, and they put them in a coffee can. But they have this—they have this feeling in in the in the film where let's go out to the ocean and toss Donnie's ashes out on <laughs> out, out into the ocean. They're overlooking this cliff, and John Goodman shakes all the ashes out, and it all blows up into the dude's face, you know. So even in in this film where it's almost like stripping life of of ordinary, you know, or traditional sacred symbols. You have a dude who bowls and drinks white Russians, you know. Even in that moment, it's like, no, the preciousness and beauty of a human life deserves um, ritual. The life, death, life cycle calls to us saying, bring your attention, draw your attention to the mystery, to the luminous pause between two great mysteries. Um, It's just making me laugh that I'm connecting (laughs) the big Lebowski with with Carl Jung and the life-death-life cycle.
1: Hey everyone, it's Kristen. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in. I hope that you're finding these messages helpful for you in your everyday life. Um, That's what we're trying to do here is gather around the idea that life is a gift and love is the point and let's give ourselves ways to move forward in that in our own everyday world. Um, So I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for being a part of this community. To those of you who have participated and given financially, we wanna say thank you to you everything that we do here happens because people make contributions people say i value this place i want it to exist for me and for other people and so i'm going to support it and so we just want to say how grateful we are um, that you do that. And for those of you who maybe haven't had a chance to contribute yet, um, we would ask you to consider maybe doing so. If you find this place beneficial, if you find these messages helpful for you, then um, consider joining us in that way. You could go to eastlakecc.com to make a contribution. Um, and we just always are thankful for the people who want this place to exist. So thanks again for tuning in. Let's get back to the message.
0: I'd like to say another kind of paradox, just to mix in here with birth and death. In a strange way, when a new life comes into the world, something ironically is taken from us. You know what I'm talking about if you're a parent. It's like the freedom that I thought I had maybe is taken from me. Or it maybe was an illusion is what I was gonna say. I can go around doing what I want suddenly. Whew, and that's so funny because something new comes in and limits our freedom. It's like my life now is going to be shaped by another human being and their wants and desires and dreams and hopes. And it's gonna break my heart. You know, Rarely do, do we tell young parents this. When they tell us, hey, we're, you know, we've got some news, we're we're about to have a baby. <laughs> okay, get ready to have your heart utterly broken. Um, and also, experience meaning like you didn't know it was possible, so again, birth takes. And in a strange way, death frees. It's very hard for me to describe and and part of me, I don't know what part, says you shouldn't feel this way. But if I just push past that, when my own father, who, who suffered from a terminal disease from ALS, when he died a few years ago, I also had a sense of freedom. And I don't just mean that he was no longer suffering, because that was present. But it was like, even like every child has with their mother or father, their presence creates a certain kind of field. And suddenly that's not there. It's not there in the same way. It's not like our parents Our parents continue to influence us long after they're gone. Everyone knows that. Um, but there was a strange sense of freedom. Freedom and responsibility. Like, okay, your dad's gone. Now what? Now what? Um, what is yours to do in the world? So sometimes... This is why it's a luminous pause between two great mysteries. We're not sure what to to make when birth limits and death freeze. And maybe sometimes it's the other way around. And this calls again for a kind of sacred attention. How can I turn toward the the gifts and mysteries of the life-death-life cycle? Or of death and resurrection or... Of something ending and and something new being born into the world so that's just a little backdrop here and for a few minutes i'd like to talk about the jesus story i'd like to talk about death and resurrection and 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 the peculiarities of this this story at a particular time in history in a very specific place um jesus comes into the world and into a family with not a lot of social status, or class, or or definitely no power? And how is it that this single life has now formed, uh, has been shaped into a kind of stained glass, where something of the mystery is refracted in the light of the Christ symbol and of the Christ image? How did this happen? And the short answer is, well, I, I, I don't know. Um, but it's still meaningful. So I want to talk a bit about about death and resurrection and, and and how we might allow it to inform and shape our own lives. And I want to back up into kind of a weird spot first. Because death and resurrection and uh, or descent and return or um, or life death life, that kind of thing is not new to Christianity. It's not like Christianity was the first um, religion to bring forth the idea of death and rebirth it's not in fact it had been around for a very long time and it was particularly present in Egyptian mythology so I want to go through kind of real briefly the myth of Osiris and the funny thing about this myth is that I had a, I took an Egyptology class in um, in graduate school and I had to read this myth and I didn't get much out of it and then I took a comparative religion class that compared this, Myth, the Osiris myth, with with the Christ story, and I really didn't get mu- much out of it. I mean, I, I got some academic insights, um, but I really didn't didn't you know go into the, on the level of the heart, or I didn't really get it, or I, I the symbol really didn't um, shatter me as symbols can occasionally do. Then I heard Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know who Jordan Peterson is. You know, controversial, very interesting and provocative um, depth psychologist. He's got a book, 12 Rules for Life. But before that came out, he just gave a series of lectures. And I heard him give a lecture on Osiris once. And it just, it, just, um, it, it ran through me. And I was like, man, I did not see this before. So I just want to give you a bit of the Osiris myth. And then I want to relate it to the, to the Jesus story. So Osiris is, was the Egyptian god, really kind of an agricultural god of resurrection or of grain. Things go into the ground. They seem to die and they regenerate or they or new life comes up out of the earth. And this was particularly important in the Middle East because you just have two seasons, the dry season and the rainy season. So a lot depends on the flooding of the Nile, in this case, Egypt, and the return or resurrection of, of Osiris. So the myth goes something like this. Osiris... Is an image of culture and of wisdom and of tradition, but he's blind. He's blind. Now that tells you something right away. That tradition goes stale after a while, like um, political parties. Don't tell anyone, but political parties grow stale after a while. Tradition grows stale. After. They blind. They're blinded by their own ideology. They're blinded by well, this is the way things always are. So. Osiris's evil brother Set comes into the picture and Set is the dark evil forces of the universe, the worst of what's in the human heart and what's possible, evil for evil's sake. And he tears Osiris to part apart. He says, now's my chance to shred tradition down to the atoms and scatter them across Egypt, which is exactly what they what, what happens. And you see this every once in a while in culture, the darker side that says, just burn everything to the ground. We've seen a bit of that in 2020. All of a sudden, set comes out and it's not a matter of how can we fix problems? It's that how can we just light the whole thing on fire and hope it burns to the ground? That's that set impulse. So Osiris is scattered to the underworld. And um, Isis, who is... Osiris's wife gets involved and she realizes that um, evil is going to have the final word if she doesn't descend into the underworld and travel all around Egypt trying to put Osiris back together again. But it doesn't work. She can't find all the pieces. But interestingly enough, she finds a phallus. This is suddenly things got PG here. She finds Osiris's phallus and she mates with the phallus and gives birth to Horus. And Horus is probably something you've recognized before. That's the um, falcon god uh, with the eye, and he can see. That's that's what falcons are known for, birds of prey. They can see from, you know, 10,000 feet and, you know, spot the smallest of things, and, and that's what's needed. When culture is blind, you need to see. And so, Horus, very much like the Jesus story, is the new life. It's the new child. It's the savior. And he comes into the world. And interestingly enough, he doesn't just take his throne like, now I'm in charge. He does fight Set. He fights evil. And I think he's wounded in the process, if I remember correctly, like all great wrestling matches. And Set is defeated and, and banished. But that's not enough. Horus has to go to the underworld and rescue his father and help him see again. And this element of the story, I think, is particularly powerful because if I come back, what is the story? This is the story of death and resurrection, of things growing stale and old and not working anymore and falling apart. And the mystery of, of femininity and... Um, uh, And feminine wisdom entering the underworld and giving birth to something new. And that new, not just taking charge and power, but regenerating the old. That's the life-death-life cycle. That's death and resurrection, not just death, period. It's resurrecting Osiris. It's resurrecting the, the father so that he can see again. What a, I mean... The fact that the ancient Egyptians, I was going to say, came up with this story, I don't actually think that's how archetypes work. Remember, we don't make meaning up. We discover where it already exists. And the elders of the community, after hundreds of years and thousands of years, began to recognize something, began to recognize patterns, began to tell stories about patterns, began to symbolize patterns, saying, this is the way things are. Things die, they go into the ground, through a mysterious process, and they have to be regenerated and renewed. This is a big cultural story. And the problem, well, I was gonna say the problem with myths, I I happen to love myths, but the problem with myths is that that right away we can hear them as metaphoric, because they are. But sometimes we're not sure what to do with them, which which is what makes Christianity and the story of Easter so powerful. Because there are mythic elements, and I mean that positively, There are deep stories going on here. Culture is blind. Religion is blind. Rome is blind. And evil comes in and tries to shred everything, tries to kill the Christ figure. And something redemptive resurrects in its place. And the very thing you think will happen, which is we will eliminate um, this child this new life, this new way of seeing, ends up being a kind of sacrificial gift that people recognize and they're drawn to. And it, be, it does begin to redeem the culture and the empire. It actually takes the empire down in, in a strange twist of events over, over uh, many, many decades. Now, my point was in talking about the Christ story is that the difference is it's brought down to the earthly level instead of half falcon half man underworld osiris big mythic gods and goddesses we have an ordinary person like you and like me and the question is how does the pattern work on the level of the ordinary that's that's the that's the That's the thing that Christianity is getting toward. The fancy word for that is incarnation. The enfleshment of something. How are the symbols enfleshed? And Christianity is trying to say they're enfleshed in the human story of Jesus and in the human story of the disciples and in the human story of Jesus's mother, Mary, offering, you know, holding the the Christ child, you know, at birth and at death. And... The story is saying something like, um, it's whispering to us something like this. Life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries. And the moment we think the story is over, the moment the burial happens is the moment that something is happening in the underworld, just out of sight and some kind of regeneration is taking place. The moment we think culture is blind, it can never be redeemed, and gets torn to shreds, something down there in the tomb begins to stir. And something like that is happening in just the ordinary terrors and joys of our life, of our story of our individual stories, of the stories of our our own families and kids and the ups and downs. And the pattern is saying that there's meaning here and that a great mystery is at work and that great mystery is interested in the turning over of things, in bringing new life out from something. Now, you don't have to believe it because sometimes like thomas i love thomas is my favorite disciple cuz he doesn't believe <laughs> or or like the thief on the cross oh how, here's this for, how's this for a symbol jesus stands between one who believes and one doesn't you know isn't that what life is like one part of me believes and one part of me doesn't so my point was believe it or not when it happens it happens when new life happens it happens When death happens, it happens (laughs) by no choice of our own. This is where I think Western American, you can do anything. You can be anything. You can manifest. We want to say, wait a minute. I understand that, you know, there's a need for personal responsibility and autonomy and and you can make some changes. And also there are massive limits to that. Anyone who's in a 12-step program will tell you that go go to a 12 step meeting and find out for yourself there are limits to our will and our power it's often the thing that is that it's often the thing that needs to go into the tomb so here's my point life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries birth and death let me put it in the jesus story life is a luminous pause between good friday and easter Life is a luminous pause between Christmas and Easter. There's another way of saying it. And oftentimes we find ourselves in between worlds. Something has ended and something has not yet been born. That's between Good Friday and Easter. And that's where, at least in my experience... We live a lot of our lives in the the darkness. (laughs) There's one scene in in the Odyssey where Odysseus, in order to go on his journey, has to go into Hades, has to go down, has to descend down into the underworld, just to keep going on the journey. And and amazingly, I think it's in the book of uh, uh, 1 Peter, it says Jesus was killed and descended into Hades, into hell. Same thing, same story. Same story. It's that underworld time. It's between Good Friday and Easter. It's the tomb time when things are wrapped up. Think about Jesus's body being wrapped up in linens. Now, this is an image of the cocoon. The cocoon in which the moth is is residing or the chrysalis in which the butterfly is housed is a time of dissolving, of dismemberment, of decay, of turning into a kind of soup. Just like Jesus, into the tomb he goes, wrapped up like a mummy, like a cocoon, like a chrysalis, dissolving. Something coming apart. That's what it feels like in that in-between time. I've lost something, and I don't know what I will regain, if anything. And it feels in-between Like you probably heard me or others talk about liminal space, in-between space. It just means threshold. Left one room, not entered the next. And the life-death-life cycle, the image, the great pattern, is trying to take us to that doorstep. And to hang out there. To grieve in that space. And sometimes not to grieve, but just to do what we can. All right, something is ended, ended and something is yet to be born. Well, maybe like the women in, in the Jesus story, let's just go down to the tomb and just wrap the body in spices and prepare and clean up. Life is like that. Sometimes we don't know. We know something is ending. We don't know if something is going to be born. All right, let's do what we can. But in that doing what we can, there's a kind of like sacred space that can open up. What is happening? And if you want to take it very personally, here are some personal questions. What in me is dying? What in me is dying? What do I need to let let go of? What do I need to allow to be dissolved and dismantled by some great hand, by some terrible, terribly loving hand so as to be reshaped in something else? What circumstances in my life are wrapping me up like, like a mummy, like like I'm in a chrysalis, like I'm in a cocoon, like I'm in the tomb, and someone has rolled the stone in front of the door, how can I say yes, as terrible as that sounds and feels, yes to what's happening? See, the great pattern is saying you can say yes to this because the story turns over. That's not quite the same thing as saying like, hang in there, it'll all be better. No, but something may shift. Something new may want to be born in the world. God, on the biggest level, don't you hope that from 2020 and now 2021, can we learn something as a culture, as a global village, for how to treat one another, how to treat our neighbors, how to treat the earth? Will we learn anything from this kind of like cocoon-like time that we've been in, in between worlds? Well, You and I can take some responsibility for what's dying, what's dying in me, what's dying in us, what's dying in our culture, and letting it happen with a kind of open-handedness that something might want to be born in its place. See, life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries, neither of which you can make happen or I can make happen. The women in Jesus's life, the disciples, I don't know, Jesus himself, didn't make the resurrection happen. It's like, well, I've got my, you know, my timer set. I'm thinking like 10 a.m. Sunday. Boom. I don't know. Some great mystery um, brought new life in the world. Something that no one was expecting. And I think that's something we forget about the Jesus story. Nobody expected it. For this horrible act to turn and be redemptive in some way. And for Jesus to whisper in the ears of of the women that he followed uh, um, or that that followed him and the men that that followed him, you go do this. You go talk about this. You go bring forth the mystery of the life-death-life cycle, of the great pattern of death and resurrection. He says, this is the way things are. This is what God is like. He holds both. Life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries which are are yet one, which are yet one. That's how the divine holds everything. And I think that's what the pattern is inviting us into, is inviting us to say yes to in small ways. So I don't know what you heard today. I kind of wandered into all kinds of things. And I hope you heard a hint, a guess, a clue, something challenging, something encouraging. Um, I hope you find your own way to turn your attention to what might be happening and how in your own life, and how you might be in a time where you're losing something. Um, and being reshaped by something? How might you say yes? How might you lower your defenses enough um, to let the mystery do its work? That's what I got for you today. Um, I miss seeing all of you in person. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being a part of Eastlake. Share this teaching. Um, share the other teachings at Eastlake. Invite people into the great conversation um, because how we hold ourselves in the 21st century as spiritual people, as religious people, as um, however you might say it, matters. How we stake a claim that meaning matters and that we can live a more meaningful life makes a difference. So wishing you well, happy Easter, and hope to see you again soon. Peace. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com donate.